Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. If you enjoy Jerusalem Unplugged, you may also like to listen to Stories from Palestine podcast. My name is Crystal. I am originally from the Netherlands. I am married to a Palestinian and I live in Beit Safafa between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. I studied history and tour guiding and I produce a weekly podcast called Stories from Palestine. You can find it on your favorite podcast player or go to the website storiesfrompalestine.info. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Due to a network issue, the quality of the recording is not as usual. I do apologize for that, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's with great pleasure that my guest is Professor Matthew Hughes. Matthew is professor of military history at Brunel University and the author of a large number of volumes, articles, and chapters, mostly dedicated to the history of the British Army and the British a military enterprise in Palestine from the period of World War I up to the end of the British Mandate. I just want to mention a couple of very important titles, particularly in the context of the history of Jerusalem. Uh, the early work uh, dedicated to a British military strategy and General Allenby, and more recently, a book, Britain's Pacification of Palestine, the British Army, the Colonial State, and the Arab Revolt, 1936-1939. But... First of all, Matthew, welcome. Hey, Roberto. Thank you very much for inviting me on to your podcast, and I hope that I have some, uh, some useful insights for your listeners. I'm sure you will. But the first question is that, how did you get to work on British military history? And more importantly, British military history connected to the, let's call it the theater of Palestine? Well, that's, that's a good question. I was always interested in military history. But I did my first degree at the School of Oriental and African Studies, and I started there having a regional interest in the Middle East, and I developed that when I worked under Fred Halliday at the LSE for my master's. So it was really a combination of the two things, uh, an interest thematically in military history, broadly understood, and then also an interest in a particular region. 
I mean, my research more recently, I've been looking at the end of empire in Southeast Asia, in Borneo. So it, my, my interest is taking me to the connections between British military force and empire. I always found it fascinating that you started at SOAS, uh, and I'm a graduate of SOAS too, and where military history, let's say, is not certainly on the list. And it's like probably one of the, uh, you know, one of those like topics, probably barely covered, if not at all. I just want to ask you something moving to your first publication about uh, Allenby and British strategy in the Middle East. Can you give us a sense of how the Middle East in general, but particularly the region of Palestine, was involved in World War I? And what were the uh, British interests in the region before we talk about then the strategy and sort of the military strategies adopted by the British to conquer the region? Uh, as you, your listeners will probably know, the, before the First World War, the British were, were very keen on controlling informally the Middle East. It was a big crossroads region uh, stretching across the British Empire in the west to India in the east. And the British also feared the Russians to the north. So the British always had an interest in the region strategically. Uh, they didn't have a, a desire at that stage to control the region directly. And when the First World War started, the British had to reevaluate their policy, and they went through a series of iterations of plans. And this was overtaken then by conquests in what's now Iraq and what's now Palestine, Israel, and vents on the ground forced the British to make decisions, the results of which were to introduce British uh, rule to Palestine, to Transjordan, and to Iraq, and French rule in Syria and in Lebanon all a result of the change in August 19, 1914 that, that the war brought. So with the outbreak of uh, World War I, the British found themselves on one side, and obviously the Ottoman Empire joined uh, the alliance with the Germans and the Austrians, and they became officially enemy. The story goes that the, uh, the, the Ottoman front was seen as a sideshow, essentially, not very relevant, and many probably know that... Uh, uh, the British uh, gathered some forces, and particularly under Winston Churchill, they tried to conquer Gallipoli, but it ended up in a failure. In fact, probably one of the first uh, numerous failures of uh, Winston Churchill in, in, in military terms. But we don't cover Gallipoli here, we cover sort of the other uh, front, which has to do with the Suez Canal and sort of a natural border between uh, British Egypt, which we should mention was a uh, uh, conquered essentially by the Ottoman, by the British in 1882, and the rest of the Ottoman Empire. Can you give us a sense of uh, the early years of the war? How did the war unfold uh, between sort of the two regions, so Egypt and southern Palestine? That's a very good question, Roberto. And um, you're right that the Middle East was a sideshow. The um, the Indian government, the British Indian government, was involved in protecting the oil fields over in southern, what's now Iran, southern Persia. But in the West, the British wanted to keep open the Suez Canal. But beyond that, they didn't have uh, big military interests in the region because the war was being fought in France. And Gallipoli is an exception, and it was a, an exciting attempt to use an amphibious operation to, well, it's not quite sure what they were doing, but it meant to knock the Ottoman Empire out to get um, sea routes into the Black Sea to Russia. But in Palestine, the Suez Canal could be protected by pushing British troops a short distance into the Sinai, 
and that then meant that the British controlled the Suez Canal. Uh, the problem was that in early 1915, the Turks, with German help and a very ambitious assault, crossed the Suez Canal and disrupted the shipping in the canal. So by 1916, the British were slowly pushing out into the Sinai to give themselves more of a buffer. And then in 1917, 1918, because of uh, political factors back in London, there's a new government led by David Lloyd George, and he was hoping to move British troops from France to other war zones. So your initial comment about Palestine being a sideshow is very true, but as the war unfolded, certain political leaders in Britain were looking to make it more of a, a main a military campaign to try and stop the British army destroying itself in France. So there's a clash inside of London between what are called Westerners, often generals, and Easterners, leaders such as David Lloyd George, who thought that the best way to deploy military force is either in France or somewhere else. I mean, they all wanted to defeat Germany. They all wanted to preserve and expand the British Empire. The question was how they were going to do it. And in late 1917, with the new commander, General Edmund Allenby, the British launched a proper offensive into southern Palestine. And that's when, in December, they captured Jerusalem. So before we move to Jerusalem, uh, and you mentioned earlier, so we have obviously the British military leaders attempted a number of times to cross the Suez Canal. And uh, the strategy was to ideally go in and reach Gaza and then from Gaza get into Palestine. But uh, eventually Allenby changed that strategy. Can you give us like a brief sense of how the war, and again, the, the strategy of the British unfolded in the region and what was the uh, Ottoman response? We tend to see often the Ottoman as these uh, poorly trained uh, soldiers with uh, not many resources, but in fact, for a number of years at the very beginning of the war, they were able to repel uh, British attempts to take over. And in fact, they even tried to cross the Suez Canal the other side. It didn't work. It didn't work. It was not successful. But it, it shows that we, we still have misperception and misrepresentation of the Ottoman army and forces in the region. That's, that's a, a very good question. And that uh, makes us think of the other side of the hill. What were the Ottomans doing? They had a very ambitious plans and they were highly successful. Right until the end of the war, they preserved Istanbul, they defeated the British at Gallipoli. The British attacked Gaza twice and the Ottomans defeated them twice. The Ottomans crossed the Suez Canal in early 1915. The Ottomans defeated a British push into the Sinai in 1916. They captured uh, a British force at Kutalamara in Iraq. In 1915, uh, they resisted the push on Baghdad. Uh, the Ottomans also fought the Russians in eastern Anatolia, and they contributed troops to the Germans in the Balkans. And they also launched an ambitious offensive down into what would now be southern Saudi Arabia and down into Yemen and towards Aden to try and spread the war to the British in that region. So the Ottomans were highly successful, and they did have some Austrian and German forces helping them, but we shouldn't overrate those forces. They were high quality, but they were very few in number, and the Germans were quite uh, disparaging, indeed racist, about the Turks. But it's worth pointing out that it's the Turkish army 
that held out in Medina, that resisted the Arab revolt, that resisted the British and the French, uh, and were fighting the Russians as well. So all in all, it's a highly successful campaign by the Ottomans, which really comes apart right at the end of the war, when the Central Alliance is defeated across the peace in Germany and Austria-Hungary. So, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a very, very uh, credible performance by the Ottomans in military terms. It's something I've been arguing with other uh, scholars recently, uh, particularly on Twitter, where in fact we, we can even draw a parallel between current events and what the uh, Ukrainian army uh, essentially is performing, uh, you know, comparing with the, with the Ottoman forces that they, they were certainly underestimated, but because of a, particularly the long-term uh, mobilization uh, in previous wars in Libya and obviously the Balkan Wars, 1912 and 13, actually gave an edge to these Ottoman forces because they've been trained for a number of years and they were ready, even though they lacked resources. You mentioned earlier that eventually everything changed when General Allenby was appointed as the new British commander of British forces of the Egyptian Expeditionary Force uh, in, in the region. And I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about who was Allenby and what's his legacy you know, in the long term? I have a feeling that particularly the younger generation don't know much about him uh, in Israel and Palestine for sure. Perhaps there was a moment where the generation of the 1960s and 70s might have heard of him, particularly through the movie of uh, uh, T. Lawrence, even though he was portrayed probably not necessarily close to the real Allenby. But uh, here is a man that was uh, somehow failing uh, on the Western Front, but he was appointed to change the, the fortunes of the Ottoman Front. Oh, it's interesting. He has, a, he has a major thoroughfare named after him in Tel Aviv. And you're, you're right that the, the First World War generals on all sides, and especially in Britain, have not emerged with much credit. And if they are remembered, it tends to be as as butchers and bunglers, as, as poor quality commanders. I mean, Allenby's move to Palestine changed his reputation because when he was in France, he struggled, as did other generals, with the problems of modern trench warfare. And he, uh, in 1914, he was in command of a cavalry unit and he had a lot of problems with his command. And by 1917, he was in command of the British army, which fought a battle at Arras, uh, before he went to Palestine, which was perhaps one would say mixed in terms of its outcome. So when he goes to Palestine, Allenby sees this as a demotion. He thinks he's being sent, as you said earlier, to a sideshow. He feels it's um, a demotion from where the real uh, glory of the war is in France. But actually, it's in Palestine that he ends up um, making his name. He emerges from the First World War, he's made a Viscount. He's uh, awarded a sum of money. I mean, he, he's a big victor in a war in which there aren't very many clear victories. Um, but when he arrives in, in the summer of 1917, the British uh, war leader, David Lloyd George, uh, substantially augments his force. So it's not just a question of his skill as a commander. He also has a lot more guns, a lot more men. And he picks up a plan and, and a set of staff officers from the previous commander. And he uses this plan 
uh, developed by these staff officers and his augmented troops, he has more cavalry, he has more infantry, he has more artillery, and he smashes the Ottoman army in November, December. But it's worth putting it into context, Roberto, because he only captures Jerusalem right at the end of the campaign. He doesn't destroy the Ottoman army, he doesn't surround it in some encirclement battle. The Ottomans escape, and the Ottomans then re-establish a line north of Jerusalem. So even his first victory is a qualified success, the Third Battle of Gaza, but it is a success nonetheless at a time in the war in France when the British army is struggling immensely. There's a big battle at a place called Passchendaele. So the capture of Jerusalem in December 1917 is a very welcome boost at a very difficult time in the war for London. The capture of Jerusalem is a dramatic event in the war, uh, mostly because of a value attributed to Jerusalem and obviously for propaganda. And uh, as you start telling the story about uh, what happened in, in December 1917, uh, I was wondering if you can actually walk us through the events that led Allenby to finally enter Jerusalem famously on December 11, 1917. Well, I mean, as, as you know, it's a, it's a stage-managed entrance. There's a procession of uh, the good and the worthy walking in. Uh, Allenby goes in on foot. Uh, he comes in through the Jaffa Gate, although if you see the pictures, the Jaffa Gate looks different then uh, than it does now. Uh, he reads the proclamation, a very brief sort of military proclamation. Um, and then, of course, he establishes in southern Palestine a, a military administration, which then extends to northern Palestine when the whole country is conquered at the end of the war. And that continues up until 1920. So uh, the, the, it's the first time since well since the crusades that here you have a british rule western rule in palestine and initially it's military rule so you see military officers seconded to rule jerusalem as a military governor called stores and there are also other officers put in charge of different parts of southern palestine and this is the beginning of a much bigger story that takes us forward to the formation of israel in 1948 and of course just before Allenby captures Jerusalem and enters the city very dramatically, there is the Balfour Declaration issued in early November, which is a key moment of uh, sort of a, a political decision by the British. As vague as the Balfour Declaration is, it is highly significant because after the war, the ideas embodied in the Balfour Declaration are established in the League of Nations mandate that the British accept for Palestine. So, this is the beginning of something very, very momentous. I have a question about uh, the value of Jerusalem. Let me draw a parallel here. There is that famous movie, uh, Hollywood movie, Kingdom of Heaven, where in, in the fiction of the movie, Salahuddin and Ibelin, uh, Balan of Ibelin, sort of a protector of Jerusalem during the Crusades, uh, you know, they have a conversation before surrendering the city and uh, Balan of Ibelin asks uh, Saladin, what is Jerusalem worth? And Saladin famously says nothing, but then after a few seconds, turns around and says everything. And I was wondering in the larger British military strategy, what was Jerusalem worth for the British? 
But my own view is that militarily, it's not worth very much. The war is fought against Germany and France. And I think that Palestine was a military sideshow. I think what the generals were not looking at was the political and cultural and propaganda value of Jerusalem to Britain in an area in which people were much more uh, aware of the Bible, uh, were more aware of the stories therein that relate to Jerusalem. So it had a propaganda value then, and it was uh, it was very much hyped up in the British press uh, when the capture of Jerusalem was hyped up in the British press. It was a, a very big event. It was seen to be a, a moment where Richard the Lionheart finally uh, got back the city that he never managed um, to capture in the Crusades. So it's a different era with a different feeling of what Jerusalem's value was. But I would, my view to your listeners is that it's not, it is not of great military value. In fact, it, it distracts troops that could have been used in France at a very difficult time in the war there. But it is of great cultural and propaganda significance, uh, it's great significance in terms of propaganda and culture. I mean, its political value is mixed because, I mean, Britain now can control a region that it wants to control to keep the route to India open. But, of course, it also opens up Pandora's box because the British end up having to control an area in which they are now going to facilitate Jewish immigration. Looking retrospectively, it's easier, in a sense, to, to say that the British wanted to keep Jerusalem but do you have a sense that actually the British were already planning to keep the Jerusalem under British control, or it was just a, a set of events and agreements that eventually led the British to establish first a military administration and then a civil administration? No, in my view is that in, the, in that rather ad hoc British way that always seems to get the British to where they want to be, the British did have uh, plans from early on to obviate commitments that they had under, for instance, the Sykes-Picot Agreement and commitments to internationalise Jerusalem. And then the British had any intention of, of having anything but British control. And when the British ended up conceding, if you say, to French rule in Syria and in Lebanon, this was largely as a result of quite heavy French pressure and changes after the war. So I, I, I think the British organised agreements, both with the Hashemite Arabs through the Hussein McMahon correspondence and then the Sykes-Picot agreement. And these agreements were not squared up with what the British were doing on the ground. I mean, the British military administration on the ground was working hard to keep British rule and it was working hard to exclude French and Italian influence. So we can say that there was a mix of uh, political, but also perhaps popular pressure to keep Jerusalem. Is that fair to believe that uh, British public opinion in general looked with favor the idea, again, as you mentioned earlier, this idea of uh, Richard the Lionheart, perhaps to rule Jerusalem as maybe in the imagination of many uh, should have been the case already from uh, the Middle Ages. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think also you need to set, that's a very good point, and I think that's true, and I think you need to set it also within, within an imperial era in where, where ordinary British people saw not just Britain, but also the empire. And the acquisition of territory at the end of the war was a mark of success. It was a mark of imperial strength. And Jerusalem in particular had this great religious significance for Christians. Um, but it also, after the war, then became a strategic value to the British. And indeed, in the Second World War, 
Palestine was a vital area for Britain's fight against Germany and Italy. So, I mean, Britain's capture of Palestine and that belt of territory across to the Persian Gulf was of great significance for when the British had the empire. And of course, as the empire fades away, that all fades away and the British pull out of the region, although they don't really pull out until the 19, late 1960s from Aden. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Moving forward uh, past World War One, so we move to uh, the period of the British Mandate, essentially starting from the 1920s. And I was wondering if you can give us a sense of uh, what was the role of the British Army in in Palestine. Is there a specific role? Uh, was it dismissed, turned into a police force? What happened to the British uh, sort of military apparatus in Palestine? You need to place the British garrison in Palestine in the context of the post-war British economy, which was struggling, and also demobilization. Men who'd served in the war were desperate to be demobilized. There were all sorts of semi-mutinies across parts of Britain by men who'd been in uh, uniform for many years and wanted to return home. So it was a period of retrenchment. It was a period of returning to a smaller army so in the context of a much smaller army, once the civil administration is formed in Palestine in 1920, and then by 1922, the British formally had the Palestine mandate, the, the, the security in the country shifts from the military to the police. Now, initially, the police are rather semi-military because many of them come from Ireland, and they shift from an irregular war there to deployment to Palestine. So they come with a lot of military baggage, but they are formally a police force 
1926, the police force becomes more recognizably what you would think is a police force in America or in Britain. It's more of a civil force. So really the military power that British Britain put in the region in 1917 and 18 disappears, but it doesn't disappear because then when there's trouble in 1929, the British are forced to deploy large numbers of troops to uh, keep apart or to repress Palestinian and Jewish uh, rebels, uh, rioting. And after 1929, the British, seeing that this is a trouble uh, spot in the empire, they, do, they leave in Palestine two battalions of troops. So for the first time after 1929, there is again a permanent garrison of soldiers, not police. But two battalions is not a large force. Uh, you're looking at about one and a half, 1,800 men. And then in 1936, as I show in the book, when the Arabs rise in revolt against the British, but also against Jewish immigration and settlement, the British deploy a, a large number of battalions. So many troops go out to Palestine. And from 1936 to 39, uh, there's a troop surge of quite unprecedented proportions to suppress the Arab revolt. And then in the Second World War, there's again a huge military deployment as part of the war against Germany. And then in 1945, there's a huge military deployment to fight against the Jews who are also now in revolt against the British. So from 1929 up to 1948, there is a permanent military presence in the country, sometimes of a great, uh, a great magnitude. The only time when you don't have permanent troops in the country is from 1920 to 1929. The book, you're talking about uh, emergency state, and, and that made me think: Was it uh, the British mandate at large always an emergency state, or it just developed that sense of emergency and therefore employment of uh, uh, military forces as a result of 1929 um, Burak revolt and obviously 1936 to 1939? Do we have gaps in the middle where actually things are not an emergency? No, I mean, my, my view is the British establish an emergency state from 1921, and they, they establish laws that would not be familiar to your listeners in America or in Britain. I mean, they establish laws that are colonial laws, and the emergency state is established through lawfare, not warfare. But when the emergency state is unable to repress the people, then the army comes in. But when the army comes in, the reason the British army is effective is it because it locks its military action into the emergency state. So curfews, detention without trial, fines, collective punishment, all of the apparatus of the emergency state is operationalized by the army. But the army can only do that in times of revolt because it's already been an established rule from the early 1920s that these laws can be operationalized. And after the 1929 um, riots, the British established a, a new order in council, which is quite a peculiar form of law, which you are unfamiliar with in Britain, really. It's a unilateral declaration. So uh, there's no input from a legislature. It's just government from on high which empowers the High Commissioner, who's the British ruler in Palestine, to essentially institute any laws he feels necessary to repress civil disturbance. And it's worth remembering that in Palestine, 
There's no local legislature to check whatever the government does. The judiciary has largely been neutered by 1936. The colonial executive has got very few checks and balances, short of the colonial office in London or the uh, uh, British Parliament in London. So if the Jews or the Palestinians can pressure an MP in London, the MP indirectly can pressure the colonial office in London to pressure the High Commissioner in Palestine. But there's no local parliament in Palestine that can tell the uh, High Commissioner, look, this is not fair. And the rules are not, I mean, they're not fair in any intuitive sense. They, I mean, the idea of collective punishment seems rather strange. You, it, it, it's like somebody, somebody in your town commits an offence, so the police come along and then perfectly legally, they punish you for what someone else has done. But you've got no, you've got no connection to that person, except for the fact that you're both Americans from Illinois or Chicago. You know, you, and the British can also destroy your house. They perfectly legally come along and just destroy your house as a punishment because someone farther down the road has gone and robbed a, a Walmart. Collective punishment is a rather common policy used currently by the Israelis. Uh, or, whether in the West Bank or even against Palestinians, particularly in East Jerusalem. And uh, it's a well-known fact that obviously this was picked up from, from the British. I was curious about collective punishment as in its origins. Does it originate in Palestine? Do we have examples of collective punishment earlier or was uh, Palestine some sort of a, a training ground for this policy? Well, you're right that the Israelis, uh, so did the Jordanians and, and Egyptians as well, to be fair. And if you're a Palestinian living in Gaza or the West Bank uh, after the formation of Israel up until 1967, the Egyptians and Jordanians also use the same laws because they're so useful. Uh, but you're right that most people focus on the Israelis and they pick up uh, laws that go back to the 1931 Order and Council. And it's quite strange. And even the Israeli police force today is guided by some of the British legislation from 1926. So yes, the Israelis pick up on the idea of collective punishment, and it's very effectively instituted by the British in Palestine. But it's not a new idea, no. I mean, it's an imperial um, mindset or an imperial structure that allows the British to rule the empire fairly cheaply. I mean, without collective punishment, you either have to have a judicial system but very expensively finds exactly who's committed an offence, um, or you have to have large numbers of troops. But I mean, collective punishment means that you can very quickly inf inflict a lot of pain on people. And what it does is it makes the colonial subject population internalise colonial rule, and they do the punishment for you. So effectively, one part of the town you can stop another part of the town doing something because they will be punished for what somebody else does, even if they've got no connection to it. If you look at what the British do, it's quite remarkable. They, for instance, use tracker dogs. And the tracker dog will go to a village through which the British think some rebel force has passed. So the rebels have attacked the British, have retreated, and they just passed by the edge of a village. So the tracker dog takes the British to the village. So the British just destroy the village. But there's absolutely no... I mean, the village has got nothing to do, obviously, with the rebels who've attacked the British 10 miles away. The rebels have retreated, they just retreated through an area, so the British just punish everybody in the area. They, they also punish by the house destruction, they punish with collective fines, and they also punish with curfew. 
and have whole quarters of a, of a city or a whole village will be curfew 23, 24 hours a day, usually during the night, which is when the British can't police very easily. So it's, uh, it, it's quite an unusual state of affairs, and it's proof that law uh, was applied quite differently in the colonies, and this is true also in France or any other imperial power. The law is applied quite differently in the colonies than it is back in the, in the, the metropolitan area. We're also curious about another uh, sort of British strategy, which was the construction of uh, forts. There is this network known as the Tagar Fort that was deployed throughout Palestine. And I was wondering whether this was a, a sort of a, a tool of uh, policing, control, or of repression. Uh, well, all, all of those things, I think it's safe to say. I mean, what you're talking about are uh, stone-built forts. You can still see them today. Some of them are Israeli police stations. Uh, and the British built forts across Palestine, and they also built a fence known as the Tegat Fence, which ran along the northern border with Lebanon. Uh, it cut across then towards uh, the Sea of Galilee, uh, and leaving the northern part, the Matula Panhandle, as it now is. The fence was built using conscripted labour, so another collective punishment which made it much cheaper for the British was they would uh, take local villages and just strip the men out and make the men work for a forced labour uh, project on a sort of what you call a chain gang. So you're right, these forts were a way of, it's a little bit like the Wild West, I suppose, it was a way of controlling and keeping the military presence across this unruly land. Um, it's worth remembering that another policy that the British implement, which is a bit mundane, but rather important, is road building. So one of the ways of, of getting troops into areas which were often quite remote was to build roads, and suddenly troops would zip up there in a lorry, and if there was any trouble in the area, it made it much easier for the British. And these roads were often built with forced labour gangs, and sometimes temporary chain gangs. Other times, the British would detain people on indefinite detention um, uh, imprisonments, and they'd renew these, and these men would also be used for road building. Now, moving towards the end of the interview, I have a couple of questions about, again, your, your latest book. Between 1936 and 1939, as you mentioned, the uh, Arab rebel against British rule, and that turned out to be both, uh, you know, in terms of like, uh, sort of we have violence uh, spread throughout Palestine. We also have boycotts, strikes, and the British reacted quite harshly. And you talk about a term which I found extremely uh, interesting from an academic perspective, but also problematic because the word is pacification. So the idea is like to bring peace, but to bring peace through military force. So I was wondering if you can give us a sense of what you mean by pacification and what did the British do in order to quell the rebellion uh, placed by the Arabs? Well, by use of pacification is in some sense ironic. Um, and the, the peace part of it, uh, I, I thought readers would realize from what's in the book, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a celebration of peace. But I mean, in a sense, if you're looking at this as many military historians do from an efficiency angle, I mean, it does bring peace for the British. Uh, it, it, does sort of, it, it does achieve what the British want. Now, my point in the book was, was partly a relative point, which some readers might be uncomfortable with, which was to say that the British 
were, were awful, but they could have been a lot worse. And I gave I give examples in the books of what other in the book of what other countries do in counterinsurgencies. So that was partly my point. But the use of classification was partly a reference to a change in what the British were doing. Your listeners will probably be familiar with great rebellions like the well, the Indian Mutiny, as the British would call it, or the Indian revolt against colonial rule in 1857. My point is in the 19th century, British counterinsurgency was a lot more violent than it was in the 20th century. And in the First World War, there is a shift and there is a massacre at Anwitsa in 1919 of um, Indian uh, demonstrators who gather in a closed wall area. The British kill some 400 of them. And after 1919, the pacification term really refers to the British are brutal, but they're not eliminationist. And there's a there's a moderation that comes because of the First World War, because of Amritsar, because of the League of Nations, because of a change of mood with national movements emerging in Africa and Asia. And so by the time of the Arab Revolt, you're right, the British are uh, very tough on the Palestinians. Uh, it, it's not uniformly so. They also work a diplomatic track. They try and bring in neighboring Arab leaders to placate the Palestinian rebels. So the British are not only employing uh, masses of military force, they're doing other things as well. And the pacification is really about how the British set up a regime, you mentioned earlier, an emergency state. And my reference to pacification was much of the pacification isn't obviously violent because the pacification comes about through the establishment of emergency laws. Um, which are not kinetic in an obvious way. And then the military comes along and the pacification becomes much more violent. And then the military goes and the pacification is still there, but it works at a different level, if that makes sense. Um, and also, I didn't want to use the word counterinsurgency, partly because everybody else uses it. And also, it's a term that really emerges in the 1960s. And I always associate it with Vietnam and end of empire wars, but this is not the end of empire. This is a moment when the British are doing things as they have been doing across the empire. And I think pacification sums up the whole colonial project of what Britain and France are doing, which is to pacify people. And it's not always through using military force. I think that your, your point may be controversial, but effectively, if we look at, for instance, how the British dealt the rebellions uh, in, in, in Iraq, the, using basically indiscriminate bombing uh, with the IRAF, that didn't happen in Palestine. If I remember where there were debates yes. whether it should have been or not used this means in Palestine, and people decided that it was not the case as essentially there were Christians and Palestinians were more European into inverted commas. Yes. Is it safe to say that there's a racial element in also how yes. the British use their policies towards the Palestinians vis-a-vis -vis other uh, colonial well, subjects? I think that's very true. And if you look at the violence that was directed at the, um, the Kenyans involved in the Mau Mau Rebellion in the 1950s, uh, which is really a moment, especially by the end of the 1950s, when Britain is, is changing the whole sort of imperial position, you see a, a level of kind of visceral torture and brutality that you don't really see in Palestine. Your mention of Iraq also makes me think of the Egyptian revolt in 1919. And it's a good point because in Iraq, and there's some mention of this in the book, 
I mean, the British just level whole villages and kill all the inhabitants. But, but from, from what happened in Iraq in 1920-21 to what happened in Palestine in 1936, the British have shifted in the sense of their, um, their use of violence is more measured. I'm not saying that it isn't there, but I'm saying it's more measured. It was hard to measure violence, but uh, but I guess at some point uh, it has to be done from an academic perspective. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult. I, I mean, yeah, I was I, I, if I didn't try and measure it, otherwise it, it was just going to be binary. It was just there is violence or there isn't. And I was trying to look at the grey area in between. Uh, and I, I make a lot of comparisons with what other countries do. And I don't pull my punches in terms of what the British did in Palestine. But certainly... There's, there's sort of eliminationist, racist, small wars in the late 19th century up to the early part of the 20th century. And there's a shift in the way the British pacify, the use of law, and as the British see it, the use of, of, of violence which has limits. I have one last question, and very much about uh, the end of the British rule in Palestine. And I was wondering, what was the role of the British military towards the end of the mandate, up to 1948, and if there's any legacy that the British left with the uh, upcoming uh, new uh, state of Israel, and of course, later on, uh, you know, with Gaza controlled by the, the Egyptians and the West Bank controlled by the Jordanians. Um, you, it's interesting, you, you mentioned earlier about emergency legislation. I, and I'm not an expert on the period of the Israeli occupation they say after 1967, but from what I've seen and what I've read, I was struck by how similar the, the systems of control and the use of law were from the British period to the Israeli period. So I saw a connection there. I mean, militarily, the Israeli army went down a different route than the British army because it, it, it went for a, a conscript army, almost like a militia force, so it's quite different. But the, the legacies there of British rule, I mean, are certainly... Uh, there's certainly continuities in the way the British control, and the British control very successfully. And if you think about it, from 1783, the end of the American Revolution, up until 1947-48, with the possible exception of Ireland in 1921-22, I can't think of a single rebellion against the British, a colonial rebellion that's ever been successful so the British led the way in, in managing subject populations, uh, violently or, or not. And, I mean, the Israelis picked up in the late 30s a lot of British military methods. The British trained uh, a Jewish cadre, many of whom later became leading Israeli military commanders. So when you look through the British files of the period, there's a, a unit called the Special Night Squads, where... Wingate, a British commander, uh, trained Jewish troops in the north in Galilee. And you see in those training cadres where the issue is pushing through lots of men because it wants to get them trained up, you, you see the future nucleus of the IDF, of the Israeli army. And so the IDF's gone down its own pathway and has its own way of doing things. But the, the, the people who formed both the Israeli state but also the IDF were molded uh, very much by what the British did in the mandate and also by what British army officers did, not least as during the Arab revolt, the British were delighted to have Jewish support uh, to repress the Palestinians 
and the, the issue of the Jews in Palestine provided very useful intelligence, for instance. Uh, they're very good um, Arabic speakers, or British also had within the army Arabic speakers. The, uh, the Jews had a very good intelligence network that the British locked onto. So yes, I do see continuity there more than change. This was Matthew Hughes, Professor of Military History at Brunel University in London. Matthew, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Roberto. I hope it's of some use to your listeners. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks and I'll see you next time. 